1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 21, Paul says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, the kingdom of God to God the Father, excuse me, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he shall put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. And Father, we just want to pray right now again for just the help and the grace of your Holy Spirit as we continue in our time of worship now by opening up the word of God. Lord, we pray that every reason behind why your spirit inspired these statements initially and originally, that Lord, you would now speak through what you've spoken, prepare our hearts, Lord, give us an ear to hear what the spirit would say to this part of the church through this particular portion of the word of God. Bless your word this morning. We ask expectantly that you'd speak to us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You heard a story of a 14-year-old who was kind of at a stage where he was beginning to feel like he knew all the answers to life. And his wise grandfather, recognizing this, took advantage of the opportunity in the conversation to kind of ask him what his plans were in the days ahead and what he wanted to do in his future. And so he began to share with his grandfather his aspirations and what he was going to do and where he was going to go to college. Uh, and his father, uh, grandfather listened for a little bit. And when he was done talking, he said to him, well, then what? He said, well, then afterwards, I'm going to get a really good career. And I'm going to make sure that, in fact, someday I hope I can actually get a six-figure salary. And he said, well, that's great. Then what? And he said, well, then I, once I know that I've got enough money, because you know you have to have enough money before you get married and have kids, he says, then I'm going to get married, and then I'm going to maybe hopefully have you know, two, three children. And he said, well, well, then what? He said, well, then I'm going to try and be as successful in my career as I can, and hopefully I can work my way up the ranks and, and continue to just have a really great life for my family. Uh, and he said, well, well, then what? And he said, well, then I'm going to do everything I can to make sure I give my kids the best life possible and send them to the greatest colleges and get them everything their hearts desire and, and hopefully can you know, get a, a second house and we can have a lake house as well and, and really have a great family experience. And he said, well, that's great, but then what? And he said, well, you know, hopefully, eventually, I can do well enough for myself, and not only I can take care of my wife and kids, and, and ultimately, that I can even retire early, and then I can get me one of those motor homes and cruise around a little bit, and in between going to the lake house, I can ride around in the motor home and enjoy life to the full and see everywhere I want to see. And he said, well, that's great, but then what? 
And ultimately, perhaps the young man began to catch on, and he said, well, eventually, Grandpa, I, I mean, I guess I'll die. And the grandfather paused and looked him right in the eyes, and he said, then what? Then what? You know, the reality is this. Though physical death is an unescapable experience of human life, and you do have to understand that, the Bible tells us there's a time appointed to death for every human being. It is the one appointment that is on everyone's schedule that you cannot cancel. You can't alter that appointment. And you don't know the day of that appointment. So it's the one appointment you have to keep, you can't get out of, but it is the one appointment that no one knows the day or the hour that they will depart in physical death. The Bible says it's appointed for all to die. But yet it is possible, here's the good news, to conquer the death process. That is to be able to overcome as we pass through the experience of death. And this comes through a relationship connection with the only one who has ever defeated the power of death. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, whose resurrection from among the dead assures and offers you and I the same opportunity to conquer the death process. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 11, so confidently these words, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. See, it's through having a spiritual union with the Lord Jesus that we conquer this dreaded enemy and the bible uses that term we just read it we conquer this dreaded enemy called death and can experience the glorious eternal reign of our lord and that is what paul's now addressing as he continues in this chapter discussing the value and the benefits and the importance of the resurrection of jesus remember last time together we saw paul had been advocating how important the truth is that Jesus Christ has been resurrected from among the dead, emphasizing with different examples that Jesus' bodily resurrection is utterly essential. Paul said, if that is not true, then everything else is futile, worthless, empty. He said, we're still stuck in our sins. Our preaching is worthless. Everyone who's preached Christian doctrine for centuries has been the worst liar in human history. And he says, if all we do is have hope in this life, then he says, honestly, as Christians, we're the most pitiable people of all. And everyone who's died didn't gain anything. They just gave up things for the cause of Christ absolutely in vain. But Paul said, but the reality is, as he came to verse 20, he says, the good news is that Christ is risen from the dead. And the fact that he has defeated the death process gives us the assurance that we can experience the same. And we talked about last time, and it's important in case you weren't here, that when the Bible speaks of resurrection, it's not just talking about life after we die. That is in some spirit realm or some you know, reincarnated experience that, yes, you die physically, but you then float around in some ghost-like existence. When the Bible speaks of resurrection, it's talking about not only life after death, but literally the miraculous transformation of these earthly bodies being changed and transformed into a glorious eternal body whereby we will experience the eternal realm afterwards. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that this morning. And Paul now builds on this idea of how Christ is the precursor in what he did 
to assure us to be able to experience the same. And he continues now to expand on more benefits of the victorious resurrection of Jesus over death. He says to us, look with me in verse 21, he says, for since by man came death, the death experience, by man should be capitalized, that's a reference to Jesus, a different man, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So as Paul opens up this section, notice he indicates how it is necessary for Jesus to have, as he did, entered into our world, into this human existence as a man in order, listen, to undo or to fix the problem of mankind. Jesus had to enter into this world as a man to undo the problem that death created for man from the very beginning. So it talks about really two things here. The first main thing is this, is man's failure causing humanity's problem. What is man's failure that caused humanity's problem? Well, look what he says in verse 21. He says, since by man, that is the first man, Adam, that's who he's referring to, came death. That is, death was brought into human existence. The Bible tells us from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 that the Lord God formed the man, the first man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, made him come alive. Literally, the language is breathed into his nostril the breath of lives. That is the lives of all of humanity, human existence. And man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, And out of the ground, the Lord made every tree grow that is pleasant for sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God initially created man, created Adam. And it says God breathed into him physical as well as we know spiritual life. That is God breathed the very life of God into him. And Adam basically, in his body, had the future lives of every human that would ever come into existence. Really, technically, we might as well forget the ridiculous argument over where people are descended from, what their ethnicity is, what their race is, what their skin color is. We all have the same father. We're all joined and equal whether we want to be or not. We all come from Adam. Every person originally got here from the same one person, the person that God created first, which was Adam. And in Adam was the breath of all human lives. Adam was basically, you may fairly say, the representative of the fatherhood of mankind. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 2 going on that the Lord then took the man, Adam, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded him, saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. Right? So God gives to Adam a loving privilege. Puts him in a perfect environment. Creates him in a perfect way. He has fellowship with God. The Bible says he walks with God in the cool of the day. And yet God gives to Adam one prohibition. Why? To prove his love to be able to have a relational experience and not just be a robot that God controlled. See, because love gives choice. So God gave to Adam a choice. 
Adam, you can enjoy everything, but one prohibition I need to give to you so that we can be relational and not this religious control thing where I control you like a little robot. So this one tree, don't touch it. And he warned him and cautioned him. And the day you eat of that, if you disobey me, the, the consequence, you shall surely die. It was never God's intention that mankind would die. But he says, if you violate my command and disobey my authority, you will die. Well, we all know what happens. The great original Adam bomb, no pun intended, right? Adam gives in to temptation. He willfully transgresses. He violates the command of God and God's authority. And in rebelling against God, he commits sin as the first man. And the next thing we see Adam doing in the book of Genesis is what? Hiding from God. Something was detached between him and God relationally. No longer is he walking with God. Now he's hiding from God. Now he has a sense of shame. Now he's in a way kind of like trying to keep himself away from God because he feels awkward being around God. And what it is is an indication that something happened. The light went out spiritually, you may fairly say. Adam died spiritually even before he began to go through the process of dying physically. Both happened. When God said, the day you eat of this, you shall surely die, Adam might have just been thinking, first of all, what's death? And if anything, maybe he was thinking, oh, you mean the end of life. It wasn't just the end of physical life. It was the end of his spiritual life. Because when Adam sinned, the Bible says the wages of sin is death and the soul that sins shall surely die. And Adam lost connection with God. He lost that fellowship, that relationship of consciousness with God. And he died spiritually. His inward man, the spirit of man, in a sense, which was once alive to God, was now dead. And he hadn't had that connection with God anymore. And it's evident by the way that he's living and how he's trying to sew together fig leaves to cover himself because he feels guilty and shamed because of his sin, as well as the physical process of death is now unwinding in his body. And Adam was the federal head or the representative, the Bible teaches, of all mankind because every person descends from Adam. So he was the representative of all of humanity, and he introduced sin and death into humanity's existence. And now we are all born in Adam's line. That's why the Bible tells us in Romans 5, therefore, just as through one man, that is the first man, sin entered into the world and death came through sin. Thus, death has spread to all men or to all mankind. So the Bible teaches very clearly that Adam could only pass on to each progressive person and generation what he now possessed, which was what? Physical life alone and a physical life that would end in physical death, as well as a physical life that was absent from any spiritual life because he was now spiritually dead inside. So he could not pass on something that he did not possess. And through being born of Adam originally, which we all are, we all inherit Adam's condition. We inherit his condition of physical life with no beginning spiritual life and physical life that ends in physical death. And that's why he says there in verse 22, look what he says, as in Adam, in connection, relationship to Adam, all, that's every one of us, all, die that is all humanity that's descended from adam is automatically born sinful by nature because that's what adam now has a sinful nature and he passes that sinful nature on to us in our natural birth existence and we're all born mortal and look this morning let me just say it is utterly important to realize that reality about yourself as a person and to understand that about every person that the bible teaches that we are born inherently 
sinful. Don't tell me I'm sinful. Really, it's not your fault. It's Adam's fault. You can be mad at Adam all you want, but you're still sinful. You are inherently sinful. You cannot raise children and believe that we're not inherently sinful. You just, you can. It's impossible. We are naturally inclined towards doing what is wrong. It's in our nature. We just commit sin and prove that we're sinners as we live out our lives. But we're inherently sinful. We're in a fallen condition. We're not in right relationship with God. We're created by God. God gives us life. But we are not children of God in our original condition. We are sinful, the Bible tells us. And sin separates us from God. As well as the fact that beyond that, that we have mortal lives and every one of us are going to face the death experience. Every one of us. And we have to realize that if that dilemma, if you could call it that, I think it's fair to say, that human dilemma of being spiritually dead, sinful by nature, and mortal that we're going to die physically, if that's not resolved before we depart from this earth, we will face the consequence and the punishment eternally for which that justifiably deserves. But here's the good news, and that's this, is God's marvelous solution, which is what Paul's alluding to, through Jesus. That is, Adam unwound and ruined everything for humanity that God wanted and made a mess for all of us. But don't think you would have done better. And sometimes we think, oh, if I was Adam. Okay. But here's the good news. God unwound everything Adam did wrong by sending Jesus, the person of Christ, living in a body of flesh as a man. He unwound the whole problem for us. And this is what Paul is alluding to. Notice he says in verse 21 that since by man came death, by, and it should be capitalized in your translation, by man, that is the second man, the second perfect man, Jesus, the last Adam, the Bible calls him, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. That is God himself became a man in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, that he may solve mankind's escapable dilemma with sin and death. And Jesus, by the way that he came and lived, accomplished what was necessary as the second perfect man, the last Adam. He came as a mediator, the Bible says, between God and mankind. The Bible says that there is one God and one mediator between God and men. And the Bible says it's the man Christ Jesus. Jesus came being the second or last Adam, you may fairly say. And while remaining God in connection to deity, Jesus took upon himself a second nature, a human nature. He retained his deity, but took upon himself a human nature as well, being connected to deity and humanity to represent mankind as God placed the life of his son in the womb of a virgin woman so that he might be born in a unique way and he may live out the perfect life for mankind that always obeyed the will of God. And because he was not born of two human parents, but he was miraculously conceived in a human woman, but God placed the deity and life of his son in Mary, Jesus could be born in a unique way. He wasn't born in a sinful, inherent condition like you and I are. And therefore, he was able as God and man to live out as our representative as a man, this perfect life whereby he never committed sin. Tempted, absolutely, in all points as we are, the Bible says. 
but he victoriously overcame every temptation offered to God the perfect life of a man as a sacrifice to God that was acceptable of the perfect life lived to enter into heaven, and then worse, took the punishment. He offered to God the perfect life that you and I can't supply to get into heaven, which is a perfect righteous place, and then he took all of our sin punishment. And he took all the righteous punishment that we deserve for our sins and selfish acts and died in our place. But the best news is then he conquered the death process as he resurrected from the dead. As Paul says, by this man came the resurrection of the dead. That as he arose back from the realm of the dead in a glorious resurrection body that he now dwells in forever. The Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus wonderfully undid all that Adam ruined as the better federal head, if you would, of mankind. Jesus undid the problem. Listen how Paul alludes to this in Romans 5. He expounds on this idea. Paul says this, listen to it. He says, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking the command as Adam did, as a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the many died by the trespass of one man, How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? He then says later in the chapter, for just as through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. So the glorious news is that God in his love solved the dilemma for us. Jesus came and unwound everything that Adam did as the last Adam, and he solved the problem of sin and death. And though Jesus has done that for us, he now can extend to us the opportunity to experience the same through connection and relationship to him. That's why verse 22 says to us as it does, for as in Adam, the natural existence, all mankind will die, Even so, in Christ, that is connected to Christ, in a relationship with Christ, all shall be made alive. So those who only remain in the spiritual line of Adam, which we all start out in, those who choose to only remain in the spiritual line of Adam and never enter into relationship with Jesus as Savior, who say, I don't need Jesus to save me. I don't want Jesus as the Lord of my life. I don't want to or need to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, those living only in their Adamic existence in their original condition in Adam's line, the Bible says that they are living in a condition where they're spiritually dead inside and they are mortal. And that means that they are not only going to die physically, but worse, that one day they're also going to experience what the Bible calls the second death. That is, that they will die spiritually. And even as death is the separation of one's spirit from the body, the second death the Bible speaks about is the separation of a man's spirit from life and the existence of God forever. Permanent separation from God in a place of torment and punishment where God sends those who do not want to be in fellowship with him, who don't want to be in relationship with God. Now, the good news is those who choose to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and embrace him as Savior. Paul says here, those who are in Christ, in a relationship with Christ, will be made alive. 
That is the opportunity to come back alive spiritually. When you're born again of the Spirit, when you accept Jesus, you come alive to God. You become conscious of God now. And you have a relationship with God. And more than that, you experience what the Bible calls the gift of God, which is eternal life. And what Paul's getting to here is this, is that our eternal destiny depends upon which spiritual line we are a part of when we depart from this earth. And this is absolutely crucial. In Adam, still living in that line of your natural original condition, you will experience death as well as spiritual death, separation from God in hell forever. But in Christ, if you've entered into relationship with Christ and you are now in the line of Jesus Christ relationally, the Bible says what? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Wow, isn't that interesting? A new creation. You've become a part of a different spiritual line where you're alive to God and you have everlasting life. And understand the Bible teaches that all humanity, all humanity will experience this idea of the resurrection from death. Jesus in John chapter five spoke of two categories of resurrection, the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. In John chapter five, Jesus said those who have done good and lived for God, they'll experience the resurrection of life, he said. And he said those who've done evil and rejected God, they will experience, Jesus called it the resurrection of condemnation. Now look, this is very important to track with and to understand. The Bible doesn't teach just the concept of one general resurrection. The Bible speaks of resurrection in the sense of a category. You are either in the resurrection of life which can happen at all different times, or you are in the resurrection of condemnation. But what the Bible is very clear about is that all humanity after death will not only continue to live on, but all humanity after death will experience the resurrection of having a physical, literal body for all of eternity. And that is utterly important to recognize because either you will have an eternal body to enjoy God's presence and the glorious experience of heaven, and embracing your loved ones, and literally, physically, in a different way, having an eternal body to experience the glory of heaven. But that also means this, that those who reject Jesus Christ, the unsaved, will also have a literal eternal body that they will dwell in forever to experience the pain and the torments of the lake of fire in hell forever and ever and ever and ever. And they will live in a body suited for eternity, whereby in that body they will continue to experience the darkness and the torment and the pain of hell forever. And this is extremely important to recognize. It all depends which spiritual line are you in, in Adam or in Christ. Jesus has come to give us that opportunity. Now, speaking to further encourage those in relationship with Christ regarding our glorious future, Paul says, verse 23, but each one, notice, will experience the resurrection. He says, in his own order. There's an order to this, he says, a sequence. Christ, the first fruits, which we talked about last time, afterward, those who are Christ, belong to Christ at his coming. So there's a divine order, the Bible says, to how all of this happens with the resurrection of our bodies, which are joined together with our eternal spirit. He says, the first in sequence is our Lord Jesus Christ, who was the first fruits. We talked about last time, the first fruits 
is the initial fruit that springs forth, assuring a greater harvest is going to come afterwards. And he says in this way, Jesus is the first fruits. Our Lord Jesus Christ lived as a man, and he was the first man to experience resurrection and overcoming death in a resurrection experience. Now you say, wait a minute there. The Bible says in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were other people who were raised back to life and came back from the dead before Jesus did, right? And Elijah and Elisha both raised children from the dead. They came back to life after they died. In the New Testament, we read of Jesus raising Lazarus, raising the widow's son, raising Jairus' daughter. These are all people who died and then came back to life. Absolutely. But all of those people, understand, were raised back to life in their same earthly mortal body. And they died again. Oh, imagine that. I don't want to do it once. You don't even get to practice. To have to do it twice? Imagine dying, getting a little taste of glory and saying, no, you're going to go back and do that one more time. Well, you envy, oh, they got raised to life. Well, they had to die twice because they were raised in the same mortal body. The distinction is this. Jesus was the first man to raise back to life in a newly transformed eternal body where you never die again. That's resurrection. Jesus was the first fruits of a man to die to receive a glorified body that will never experience the death process again. That's what Jesus did and what Jesus offers now to you and I, that our mortal earthly body can be transformed like unto his glorified body. And he was the first fruits of this, assuring a greater harvest of all the rest of those who belong to Christ and are in Christ. But the order of the resurrection of the bodies, he says, Jesus Christ first, and look what verse 23 says, and then afterward, after Christ, those who are Christ or belong to Christ at his coming. So notice, it's at the coming of Christ, the Bible says we shall experience the resurrection and transformation of our bodies and receive our eternal bodies. The coming of Christ, the Bible teaches, happens basically, you could fairly say, in two phases. The coming of Christ happens in two phases. Jesus comes first for his church, and then Jesus comes back a second time in the second coming with his church. First, Jesus comes for his church, that is to remove us, to yank us off this planet miraculously and quickly before the bringing forth of a seven-year period of tribulation where God's wrath is poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. And you and I are there together with Jesus in heaven, having escaped the wrath of God because we believe he bore the wrath on our behalf. And so we're separated from that. But then at the end of that seven-year period of tribulation, Jesus comes back to this earth, touches down to set up his kingdom. And the Bible says that you and I come back with him. In our glorified, resurrected bodies, we return with the Lord Jesus Christ. He overthrows the Antichrist, sets up his kingdom, and we reign with him, the Bible says, during the time of the kingdom age. And that resurrection experience of our bodies being transformed, the Bible teaches, happens during this first coming when Christ yanks us off of the earth. The Bible tells us this in 1 Thessalonians 4 regarding that. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. He's talking about those who've died. 
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep or who are already dead in Christ. For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or who've died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, the idea is on this earth, it says, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now it is at this point of Christ's coming at the rapture, the catching away of the saints that the Bible teaches our bodies are transformed and our eternal spirit is united with this resurrected body. Look a little further down in chapter 15. We'll see where Paul says this regarding what I'm referring to. Chapter 15, look down in verse 50. He says this regarding this event. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Not everybody's going to die, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed, miraculously transformed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So the Bible indicates, look, we can't enter into heaven, a glorified eternal existence in these mortal bodies. A change has to happen before we enter into that eternal dimension to live in that eternal realm. And the Bible teaches that it's the end of that seven-year period then of God's wrath being poured out that of those who rejected Christ, that all of us as Christians, as I said, who have been waiting in heaven with the Lord, we then return with Jesus in our glorified, resurrected bodies. Revelation 19 describes this, the second coming of Christ. He comes back to this earth, sets up his kingdom, overthrows the Antichrist, casts him into a lake of fire. Revelation 20 then tells us that Satan himself is bound and imprisoned for a thousand years. During the time that Christ will reign upon this earth, during the kingdom age, you and I assisting him, and there will be, during that time of the kingdom age, human beings who are still on this earth, who will be born during that thousand years, who will live, who will die during that thousand year reign of Christ, who will be in the same position to a degree as you and I, where they will have to look at this glorified, righteous king in Jerusalem, and they will have to believe at one point in time in human history, that powerful, righteous ruling king over this kingdom on earth, he came as a mortal and he was spit on and beat and abused and people tortured him and they pierced him to a cross so that he could die for the sins. And they will have to believe that in faith, just like you and I at one point in time had to believe that in faith. And then the Bible says at the end of that thousand year reign, Satan will then be released after being in prison for that thousand years. And he will rally one last rebellion effort on the earth. One last time, he will go out and give a final opportunity for mankind at that time to decide. Listen to how Revelation 20 describes this, and it ties into our next verses. He says, Revelation 20, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out and deceive the nations 
which are in the four corners of the earth, to gather together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up to the breath and the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And then the devil who deceived them was then cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. There's the end of his time where the beast and the false prophet, listen, where the beast and the false prophet are. doesn't say were. You take notice of that? After the thousand-year reign of Christ, the devil is finally cast into the lake of fire and hell, and it says the beast and the false prophet, that is the Antichrist and the false prophet, it says that's where they still are. doesn't say that they, they were there and they burn up. No, they've been there suffering already for a thousand years in their eternal bodies, still suffering torment. And Satan is now done away with at that point, it says, and the Lord puts down this final rebellion. Now, this is what Paul discusses as he then goes on. This is what he's alluding to. Look at verse 24. He says, then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till he puts all enemies under his feet. So then he says, comes, verse 24, the end. The illusion there is the end of mankind's existence of living on this earth and all the efforts of man to rebel against God throughout human history. We read here in verses 24 and 25 very clearly, there is coming a day when Jesus as the rightful king over all things and over this earth is going to finally exercise his power and his authority and his rulership. And it says there in verse 24 that he is going to put an end, an end. In the end, he's going to put an end to all rule, to all authority, and to all power that is not of God. And that for different times in human history was working in opposition and resistance to God and to his ways in a rebellious manner. That means there's going to come a time, as we just read in our Revelation 20 passage, where the power and the authority and the influence and rulership of the devil, who like a cruel bully has been ruining lives for human history, is going to be completely dethroned. And Jesus says there's coming a day where I'm going to say that's the end. You will never influence a human soul again. And there is coming a day, the Bible says, when his influence will be destroyed and dethroned. He says that means as well the power and the authority of the rule of all forms of human government. Through all human history, many a times, right, corrupt leaders, and evil policies of rulership and power that have harmed and ruined people's lives through corrupt government policies and actions. One day, Jesus puts an end to all corrupt human governments. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Because he is going to establish the perfect, righteous rulership over the earth. That's why verse 25 declares he must reign till he puts an end to all enemies under his feet. See, the Bible says all enemies of God are going to fail. It's absolutely vain, God tells us in love, absolutely vain to rebel against God. 
to resist against your creator's rulership, to do what you can to fight against or refuse his will. It's utterly vain for man to fight against God's word or to try and succeed in rejecting Jesus, for in the end, Christ will triumph. Christ is going to conquer all. And as a conquering king, he will take rightful control. His reign will outlast all human rebellion and all humanity will one day submit itself to the conquering authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says it this way, God has exalted Jesus, so at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, if you bow your knee in this life, then you will bow your knee to Jesus when you see him face to face and confess he's Lord unto your salvation. But if in this life you refuse to bow your knee to Jesus or confess that he is Lord because you just think you're a little too cool for Jesus or you don't need Jesus, understand one day you will bow the knee to the risen Lord Jesus Christ And you will confess you are Lord and he will say you're correct and therefore you've acknowledged the reason for your eternal damnation. Because you refused me on earth. So the Bible exhorts us to take this into consideration. Nothing succeeds in rebellion against God. He's going to conquer He's going to rule. In fact, it says here in verse 24 that in that day, in the end, he's going to deliver, look, deliver the kingdom to the father, giving him the fruit of slavery. He's going to say, Father, here is what has always been rightfully ours. I conquered it all back, Father. Here it is. It's always been ours. And I went and conquered to give it back to you. Notice there's one last enemy, however, in need of being dethroned. Ultimately, what is it? Verse 26 The last enemy that will be destroyed, the Bible says, is death. Physical death of human beings is referred to in the scripture, notice, as our enemy. That death is the enemy of mankind. It has tormented mankind and made us suffer for all human history. In many ways, for example, the fear of death, right? The enslavement of the human soul to be terrified to die or what happens after I die. Hebrews 2 describes it this way. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise shared in the same, that through his death, listen, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The Bible says there are people who through the fear of death live in bondage. They're enslaved their whole life because they're tormented by the reality of their own death. Not only that, death is an enemy because of the pain that's caused by death, right? The heartache, the difficulties that we go through in loss and separation. I have personally experienced the loss of loved ones, and that is a pain that's indescribable. In pastoral ministry over the past two decades, I have sat with this process with families and walked them through the gradual, you know, passing of a loved one, waiting for them to pass, waiting for them to pass, sitting with them in hospitals and homes until their loved one breathes their final breath and watching them enter into the eternal existence. And I can tell you, the pain is palpable. You can feel it in the room when someone dies. The pain of death is unlike any other form of human pain. 
It is an incredible, incredible, painful existence that happens in the human soul when we experience death. That's why the Bible says here that death is an enemy because it hurts tremendously. It harms us as mankind. For many, the fear of death and panic over it, it controls the way they live and it rules their whole life. Right? I mean, truth be told, let's be honest. Many people spend their life not living. They spend their life doing everything they can trying not to die. Has not the whole COVID experience showed us that? You make people afraid, you can control the world. And what fear are you preying upon? You might die. You'll do anything if we tell you you might die. Well, listen, God said it from the beginning. You're all dying. We should have always been that terrified. Something's going to make all of us die. But there are many people who through the fear of death during their whole life, they're doing everything they can to survive. That's why they eat the diets they eat, they exercise. And literally everything is driving on. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. For those of you who are real healthy, we'll bury you in my garden. You can be fertilizer. No, I'm just kidding. I don't even have a garden. That was just a joke. Try and lighten up a little bit. But death is a horrible thing, right? It's an enemy. And it's an enemy because it robs from us those that we love, right? It robs from us those we love. And, and, and it's like an enemy. It comes in like an invader and it attacks our families and it steals from us our spouses and our parents and our children and our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it robs us of people from our lives. And because of that, death is a horrible enemy. But yet look at the promise of God, verse 26. He says that last enemy, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed. You know, reading your Bible later today, Revelation 20 and 21, and it tells us that there is coming a day at the end of the kingdom age when death itself will be cast into the lake of fire. It's gone forever. Death is abolished completely, the death process. And Revelation 21 says that there's coming a time when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there shall be no more death, no more sorrowing, no more crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Can you imagine that there is going to come a time in our existence when death will be destroyed forever, forever? We will never have to worry about dying and we will never have to watch and experience someone that we love dying. No more funerals. No more caskets caskets being carried. No more figuring out how to adjust. How do I deal with the trauma of this loss of someone who's been yanked out of my life because an enemy stole them away from me? Never again. Gone. Why? Because of what Jesus did. Because of what Jesus did. That enemy of death will be destroyed. Well, look how Paul concludes verse 27. Quoting from the Old Testament, he says, For he, God, has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him that subject to Jesus, it's evident, Paul says, that he who put all things, God the Father, under him is accepted. In other words, God puts things under the feet of Christ, but it excludes the Father. And then he tells us why. Verse 28. Now, when all things are made subject to him, submitted and subjected to Jesus, the son himself will then also subject himself to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. So look how Paul wraps this up. Paul says, in the end, 
Jesus will honor the heavenly father by subjecting himself to the authority and the rulership of the father. Jesus, who is ruler of all, who has conquered all, who's in control of all and defeated all, yet in victory he will yield himself in submission for the glory of God eternally. The purpose of this, Paul says, verse 28, is so that God may be all in all. The idea is that God may be glorified in all things, that everything may come back under the harmony of the glory of God as it always supposed to be. Now, what's the lesson in this for us? I believe it's to let the spirit of the risen Christ, who the Bible says, if you're a Christian, dwells inside of you, to let the spirit of the risen Jesus living within you accomplish the same in your life. Jesus' life has always been what? Not to do his will, but the will of the Father who sent him. Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. And he has always lived in submission to, for the glory of God, to the will of the Father. He even died to himself to fulfill the will of his Father in heaven. And today, Jesus is alive, he's risen, and if you've accepted him into your life, the risen spirit of Christ dwells within you, and he's wanting to now live out the same through your life. And what he is teaching us is an important thing. His life shows us how do you truly conquer in life? Die to yourself and live unto God. Die to yourself and live unto God. That's the way that you conquer. Today, is it possible in any way you have been opposing what God wants for your life? And in some way, if you were to be honest, you've kind of been wrestling with seeking your own will. Can I just encourage you with this? That will never succeed. Will never succeed in the end. Ultimately, the best thing you can do to conquer is to say, woe unto him who strives against his maker. And the best thing that I can do is say, God, not my will. Your will be done. God, help me to die to my desires and my ideas and to give up. And in faith, to trust your plan always works out best in the end. So, God, today, conquer me. I want your plan. Not my plan. Let's stand together.